0: Good morning. Well, we are in our third week of our sermon series, The Family of God on Mission. We are, uh, if you've been here for the past a couple of weeks, you know that we are looking at what it means for us as a church to come together, live together, embrace each other as family. That's kind of the inward focus of our life together, but also recognizing that we are a family that is on mission In the world. And so we were trying to hold both of these ideas together, that we're a family and that we are on mission. So we've been looking through the book of Ephesians, Paul's epistle to the church in Ephesus, studying these themes, looking at the gifts that God gives to the church that allows us or enables us to be a family on mission. The first week we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, the first half of that focusing on the gift of grace that God gives to us, the power that transforms us, Uh, and enables us to come together as a family and to be on mission. And then we looked last week at the gift of unity and how we uh, already have unity that we need to live into because of our shared participation in the Spirit of God. And this week, we look at another gift that God gives to the church, the gift of love. Love is the beginning, it's the middle, it's the end of the Christian life. If you were to take all of, uh, Jesus says, if you were to take all of the law and the prophets, if you were to sum up everything that was written in the Old Covenant under the Old Testament and you were to sum it up, it would be love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And as we look at how the church begins to be born out of that kind of an ethos and an ethic, we see that love is the center of, and the end and the the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian faith. Morality, correct doctrine, sacrifice, all of these are necessary, but they are not sufficient for capturing the essence of Christianity. So we are on what is probably the, the apex point of what it means to be a Christian, what it means for us to come together as a church, as a family, and what it means for us to be on mission in the world. But before we can get too far down the road of loving God and loving others, we need to understand and receive God's love for ourselves. We can't pass on what we don't first possess. So my goal for this morning, my prayer for this morning is the very thing that Paul has prayed for here in this passage if you were paying attention, and I hope you were as this passage was read, this is, this is a prayer that Paul has prayed for the church in Ephesus. He's been saying a lot of things up to this point, but he gets to Ephesians chapter three here towards 14 through 21, and he, he now breaks into a prayer for the church that they would come to know and comprehend the love of Jesus. And that's my prayer for us. That's my goal for us in looking at this passage. Our passage this morning is, I think, such a beautiful passage. And one commentator that I was reading uh, on this passage said that this is such a beautiful passage that even to try to comment on it is to mar the beauty of it. And I'm sympathetic with that, but if I were to make a habit of standing up here and saying this is such a beautiful passage, let's just read it, I, I might be out of a job. So in the interest of job security, I'd like to highlight, I'd like to highlight three truths from this passage that helps us see God's love for us. That's Paul's prayer here, is that we would come to see, that the church in Ephesus would come to see, and by extension, that we would come to see the love that God has for us. So here's the the three truths about God's love I want us to explore uh, here in this passage. God's love is a gift to be received in humility. God's love is a reality to be received in faith and God's love is transforming to be received in hope. So these are the three points that we want to look at here this morning. We're going to look at each of these three, specifically focusing on how our comprehension of God's love constitutes and brings us together and shapes our identity as a family together here, Calvary Memorial Church. And then we're going to look at how uh, this love that we live into as the children of God then empowers us for mission in the world. If you are part of the Calvary family, and I think this is a a chance for us all to be reminded in fresh ways this morning about how God loves us, about how God loves us as individuals, not just kind of in an amorphous sort of blob that is Calvary Calvary Memorial Church, right? But He loves us as individuals, and then He loves us collectively together as a church. We hear so much about the love of God and how God loves us, it can become almost familiar to us. And familiarity, if we're not careful, can breed contempt. And we want to not just become kind of indifferent or callous to these declarations in Scripture about how God loves us. If you're not a believer this morning, if you're not a member of the body of Christ, not just not a member of Calvary, but if you are, are not a, a believer this morning and you're perhaps sorting things out, you're exploring the Christian faith, you're trying to make sense of it, and you're, you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith, then view this sermon this morning, view Paul's prayer as an invitation into the love that God has for his children. God, I think we might say, uh, he, he loves all human beings in the same way that a good man loves his fellow men. But God loves his children uniquely, just as a good father loves his children uniquely. Don't content yourself with kind of the general love that God has for the world. There is, in fact, kind of a, a season. That's a, that that's love is there for a season, but it's not forever. The forever love that God has for the world is found in his Son. And use this sermon as an invitation. Open yourself up even perhaps in prayer Take a step of faith and pray that God would speak to you and would reveal His love to you and step into the love that God has for His children in Christ. All right, so jumping into our passage this morning, God's love is a gift to be received with humility. That's our first point. God's love is a gift to be received with humility. Love, for love to be real love, has to be given and received as a gift. Notice what Paul says here in verses 16 and 17. He says that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. And then he says, through his spirit and your inner being, that Christ might dwell in your heart through faith, pointing towards the last part of uh, verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So Paul Paul is recognizing that God, who is rich in glory, grants out of the abundance of this glory that we might be rooted and grounded in God's love. God, who is rich in glory, has more than enough. He He has superfluous glory. And out of the abundance of this glory, he passes it on to us. And when God's glory hits our lives, it lands in our lives as love. I kind of have in my mind a bit of a picture here of when moisture falls out of the atmosphere and hits freezing temperature, it enters our world as snow. I kind of have that picture of like God has just an infinite amount of glory. And as He dispenses it upon His people and it falls down into our lives, it lands upon us as love. God turns over the buckets of his glory, as it were. And there's no, there's no cost to this love. It flows out of the riches and the abundance of God's glory that he freely grants to us. We don't need to earn it in advance. God's love comes into our lives as an overflow, apart from any compensation on our end. Paul has already made that explicit, as we saw two weeks ago from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. He's wanted us to understand that the grace, which is another way of saying God's love, has come into our lives freely as a free gift, not through any work of our own. The idea of a free gift, though, if you've grown up in church for any length of time or you've been exposed repeatedly to the gospel, the idea of a free gift, it, it can become commonplace to us because, of course, gifts are free. That's how we tend to think of gifts in our culture, but in the Roman culture that Paul lived, there wasn't always assumed that gifts were freely given. In fact, in the Greco-Roman culture, most gifts and favors, especially gifts and favors given by people in positions of power, they were not free. They came with an expectation of reciprocity. Gifts were given in Paul's world as an investment. I'll do this favor for you, but now you owe me and I'm going to come and I'm going to collect what it is that you owe me at some point in the future. In fact, some philosophers, both before Paul's day and in Paul's day, said it was really pointless to give gifts to the poor. Don't give gifts to the poor because they can't pay you back, was the logic of gift-giving for many in the Greco-Roman world. But God's love isn't like that. He gives His love freely, not just as the rich or the wealthy or the powerful would do to, to pull people into their orbit and then later demand a favor in return. God doesn't give his gifts like that, as though anyone could give God a favor, as though he was somehow in need and that he gave his gifts to get something back. He gives to the poor and the needy. And Paul makes this point very clearly in Romans 5, 6, and 8. This is a passage that many will be familiar with, but it's It's helpful to reflect on it again here. Listen to what Jesus or what Paul says about Jesus' gift to us from God. For while we were still weak, while we were still poor, while we couldn't give back anything to God, where there was no advantage to himself, as it were, in terms of how the ancient world gave gifts, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How remarkable is God's love in the context of the Greco-Roman world? I mean, remarkable in our world too, but where you wouldn't even give gifts unless it could be paid back, in what way would you ever give gifts to your enemies? And yet this is the way that God gifts us his love in Christ. He gives it to us when we can't pay back. And what good news it is for all of us that God's gift is free. Yet surprisingly, receiving a truly free gift of love can be harder than it sounds. I mean, it sounds good, but there's something inherently humbling even if we think about it, terrifying about opening ourselves up to receive the free gift of love. Any free gift of love, but God's free gift of love. To open ourselves to love requires us to be vulnerable, to lower our defenses. It requires humility to put ourselves in the position of the receiver. To receive a free gift is to say i don 't deserve it i 'm humble i 'm receiving it freely. This connection between gift giving and humility was impressed upon me one time. I was at a pastor 's conference, and if you 've ever been to any of these big pastor conferences or conferences in general, you know you bring in all the uh, the flashy speakers and but there was one speaker in particular uh, that I don't remember even who else was there, but this one speaker, Dave Stone, uh, was a pastor from Southeastern Church and a big church, but I remember not so much what he said, but he just had such a humble posture, just so down to earth in his uh, talk at the conference. And I was walking around between sessions, and I happened to walk past him. He was just sitting on a couch out in the lobby, you know, on his computer. And, and uh, at first, I almost didn't notice him, but then I did notice him. And, and uh, I just paused, and I said, hey, I just want you to know I really appreciated uh, your message. It was really impactful to me. And I remember what he said. It's always left an impression on me. He said, thank you. He said, that was kind of you to say. And I thought, wow, what a, what a humble reception. And taking my compliment as a gift. Because how often do we, right, when someone compliments us, how often do we want to say, oh, it was nothing, right? Or we want to, like, like, push it back a little bit. Because to receive a gift as a genuine gift requires us to be humble, requires us to receive it with gratitude and thankfulness. But there's, there's, there's a vulnerability in that. There's a vulnerability in receiving gifts freely. It takes humility to do it. And some of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, would rather earn the love that we receive because it's safer, it's in our control, and we're at no mercy but our own. What if we could just kind of control everything and not have to put ourselves in positions of defenselessness and humility before others? Perhaps some of you live out your relationships like that. You can't let down your defenses enough to be freely loved. And you only accept the love that you believe that you've earned. Snow no free lunches. That's your motto. What a sad and lonely way to go through life. In your self-protection, you are protecting yourself from the very thing that makes life worth living, which is love. If you want to be different, and you should want to be different, then I would submit to you that you will only learn to receive love freely and unmerited in humility from your human relationships in proportion to the degree that you learn to receive love freely and unmerited in your relationship with God. I think that's what impressed me so much about Pastor Dave Stone is that that mark of humility that he had in his relationship with God that I saw in his preaching carried over into his capacity to receive gifts freely, a compliment, even just a small gift, but to receive it freely in the way that he receives gifts from his fellow human being. It's because we have learned to receive God's love freely and humbly and vulnerably that we are able to learn to receive gifts from each other freely and humbly and vulnerably. There's no earning God's love. We have nothing that he needs. He does not give gifts to us so that he can call in favors later. We have no favors to give to him. God's love can only be accepted in a posture of humility and vulnerability, or it can't be accepted at all. So in what ways this morning do you need to open yourself up to the free love of God? In what ways do you need to drop your guard, perhaps drop your pride, your self-protection, and simply receive God's love as a gift? He loves us just as we are. And in that same spirit, we need to be a family, we need to be a congregation that is marked by a humility that is open to receiving love from one another. We need to have confidence that we are loved by God and we need to drop our self-protection and pride and let ourselves embrace together the vulnerability that comes with giving and receiving love from each other. We want to be a congregation that is swept up into the love of God. We want to be a congregation that loves each other then we need to recognize that God's love in our lives is a gift to be received in humility. All right, so first point I think that we can draw from this passage is that God's love is a gift that can be received, that must be received in humility. Second point, God's love is a reality to be received in faith. So perhaps vulnerability and humility are not your primary barriers to receiving the love of God. Perhaps you, you long to know the love of God, but you can't bring yourself to really believe that you are loved by God. And I know that's a situation for many that I've talked to over the years, where, where you, you, you've heard that you are loved by God, but, but it's so hard to really believe that you are loved by God. You can't believe that you are loved by God because you cannot feel that you are loved by God. You look at your own unworthiness, you look at your own shortcomings, and, and you don't feel God's love in your life, and so it's so hard to believe that you really are loved. If that's you this morning, you're not alone. And, it is, in fact, seemingly the very thing that compels, that compels Paul to write this portion of Scripture to the church in Ephesus. It seems such a basic element of the Christian life to, to receive God's love, to believe that you are loved by God. But if it were so easy, Paul wouldn't earnestly be praying that it become a reality in the church of Ephesus. It's not as easy always to believe that we're loved by God. Notice the, verse 18, Paul prays that the believers, look what he says here, he prays that they would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God, love of Christ, that you may surpass, knowledge, that surpasses knowledge, that it may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays that we would comprehend God's love. But as I was studying this morning, or studying this week, I was looking uh, at this word comprehend. It's an interesting word. Its primary definition when used throughout Scripture means to overtake or to lay hold of. And it's often used to refer to someone that is pursuing an enemy. They're trying to overtake their enemy. All right? a, it's like almost the idea of a chase where you're trying to lay hold of something. God's love is not running away from us, of course, but it can sometimes feel like it's running away from us and that we're chasing after it and can't lay hold of it. We can't overtake it. We can't comprehend it. It's always slipping away from us and escaping us. But note that Paul does not pray that the Ephesians would be loved by God. Rather, he prays that they would be able to comprehend the fact that God has loved them. And then later in the next verse, he says, He prays that they would know God's love. Paul has spent his entire epistle up to this point highlighting all the ways that God does already love the Ephesians. Chapters one, two, and three, we go back through and we've already made comments on it in previous sermons, but God clearly already loves the church in Ephesus. And now Paul is praying that the church in Ephesus would be able to lay hold of and understand the love that has already laid hold of them what I want to draw our attention to this morning is this fact that God loves us even if we don't feel or comprehend his love. Everything that Paul says of the Ephesians up to this point in the letter is no less true, is no less true simply because the Ephesians have not fully comprehended it. So too with us, comprehending God's love Laying hold of God's love, understanding God's love doesn't make it true. God's love precedes our comprehension of it. And perhaps that's a word for some here this morning that you need to hear. You've heard it said that God loves you. You've read it in the Bible that God loves you, but you can't seem to feel it. You can't seem to lay hold of it in a tangible way. And you think that because you can't seem to feel God's love, you may actually not be loved. It's wonderful to feel God's love, to comprehend God's love. That's Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3 that we're looking at. That's what he wants for the church in Ephesus. And it's my prayer for us as well that we would come to comprehend and to know the love of God, to lay hold of it and grasp it. But just because you struggle to feel God's love doesn't mean that you are any less loved. We know God's love because he tells us that he loves us, not primarily because of any subjective experience that we may or may not have at any particular time. You are no less loved by God simply because you can't seem to muster up a sense of feeling loved by God. Just as we accept God's love as a gift in humility, so too we accept God's love as a reality in faith. I think much of this in any case has to do with our personalities. Some of us have a a wide range of personality in terms of what we feel in our emotions. Others of us are more narrow in our affect. My previous church, one of the pastors referred to me as Pastor Flatliner. (laughs) I, I don't know that it was a compliment, in fact. But in any case, If you're you're flat in your affect as a person and in a personality, then your relationship with God is gonna live within that space, and that's okay. And if you feel the whole world dramatically in highs and lows, then your relationship with God is probably gonna reflect that capacity too. And it's okay, right? How we feel in the moments of our lives doesn't make God's love for us true or not true. And perhaps your desire or your sense of burden to feel God's love is the mistake that prevents you from actually comprehending God's love in the first place. I don't know if you're like me, maybe you're not, but nothing tends to squelch my feelings. I don't just mean my feelings of love for God or his or the feeling that I'm loved by God, but I mean just feelings in general. Nothing tends to squelch my feelings more than being told I'm supposed to feel something. Right? If you're told you're supposed to feel something, and you carry that sense of burden and you try, it just like, it just like squeezes the whole thing to death, right? You don't need to feel God's love in order to be loved by God. And sometimes when you release yourself of the burden of feeling God's love and just embracing the fact that you are loved by God, that the feelings actually have room to, to kind of bubble up and breathe a bit. So receive the truth that God loves you in faith. And let that be the starting point. Receive it in faith. Let's together receive in faith the fact that God loves us as the starting point. So God's love is a gift to be received in humility. God's love is a reality to be received in faith. God's love is transforming to be received in hope. As we've already noted, God's love for us is a gift that precedes any merit or worthiness on our part. And thank God for that, or we would all be hosed, every single one of us. If we had to bring something to the table, some worthiness in order to be loved by God, some capacity on our end, we would be in desperate straits, every one of us. Yet as much as we should, and we really should be grateful about the unmerited nature of God's love, there would be something disappointing, something dissatisfying, something ultimately disheartening about forever being an object of piteous love. Have you ever been piteously loved? Perhaps there was a time in your life, perhaps maybe you are now going through a time when you just couldn't get your act together. You just couldn't make it work. You were trying, but you were just failing, no matter how hard you tried, and yet you were loved through it all the same. Perhaps it was a love that rose above all of your failures, the love of a parent or the love of a spouse or even perhaps the love of a child that loved you in spite of yourself. To be piteously loved is much, indeed, much better than to be judged or rejected, But who among us wants to be piteously loved forever? I mentioned a number of weeks ago that I had recently read Charles Dickens' David Copperfield. And in the story of David Copperfield, there's a young lady named Emily, and she's engaged to a young man named Ham. And uh, the relationship is rocky, and this is, and it's strained. And listen to what Emily says. She says, uh, "Emily cried, sobbing. I am not as good a girl as I ought to be. Not near, not near. And still she cried as if her heart would break. I try your love too much. I know I do. She sobbed. I'm often cross to you and changeable with you when I ought to be far different. You are never so to me. Why am I ever so to you when I should think of nothing but how to be grateful and to make you happy?" You always make me happy, said Sam. My dear, I am happy in the sight of you. I am happy all day long in the thoughts of you. Ah, that's not enough, she cried. That is because you are good, not because I am. And she didn't want to just always be an object of piteous love. And the good news this morning is that God's love doesn't leave us always, forever, an object of piteous love. It's not wrong to want to be worthy of love. It's not wrong even to want to be worthy of God's love. And the great news this morning is that God's love not only loves us when we are unworthy of it, but even more, God's love makes us worthy of itself. Look what Paul says in verse 19. He says that as we come to comprehend the love of God, we are Filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God is another way of saying we are made complete. We are are made uh, into God's image. There's a whole bunch of different words and language that could be used all throughout the New Testament by the Apostle Paul and the other authors to speak of the maturity that is achieved in Christ when God finishes his work in us. And here Paul is using this language of filled with all the fullness God's love in our lives is not a mere covering love. It's not merely a stopgap that covers the distance between our sin and God's holiness. God's love not only embraces us in the midst of our unworthiness, but it reaches down into our unworthiness and makes us worthy. This is what we saw in the first sermon, more pointedly looking at what grace does. Salvation is not merely mercy that covers our sinfulness but it is also a power that transforms us. Not all at once, to be sure, but over time, and ultimately realize that the day of resurrection, God's mercy and his love and his grace in our lives transforms us into the kind of people who no longer need mercy. In that same way, God's love makes us lovely. It transforms us and sweeps us into the very life of God. So, the fact that God loves us is to be received in humility as a gift, to be sure, but it's also to be received as a transforming power in hope. This is the truth that impacts the way not only that we think about our own lives. So, you come this morning and you recognize, or maybe you come this morning thinking that the best that I will ever hope for is to be piteously loved because I will always just be a screw-up. I will always just be an object of pity. Better to be an object of pity, but, but God isn't telling us in his love for us that the best that we can hope for is to always be just an object of his pity. He, in his love, is making himself one with us through Christ and is raising us up to all the fullness that God wants to place in us through his salvation. So this truth impacts how we think about ourselves as individuals, but it also impacts the way that we think about each other as a congregation, the way that we relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. God's love is not only making me worthy of his love, God's love is making you worthy of his love. And that that should impact how I think about and treat you, and it should impact And it should impact the way that you think about and treat me. We need to learn to think of each other and treat each other, not as we currently are in our in-process selves, but we need to learn to live into relationship with each other, thinking of each other and treating each other as the real selves that exist from eternity in God's mind. The real self that has been raised up with Christ, completed in Christ, sharing in the fullness of the Godhead with Christ as a gift that has made us worthy to receive the love that God pours upon us. Some things that we love, we love because they're worthy of love. Some things we love because of our pity. God loves us now with pity, but he is making us worthy of his love. And we need to see each other in faith as worthy of God's love. And one of the chief ways that God's love perfects us, does this transforming power in our lives, is through the love that we extend to each other. It's The love that we give to each other that is the transforming power of God's love in our lives because the love that I give to you in Christ and the love that you give to me in Christ and the love that we give to each other in Christ is God's love that he has poured out into us. It's not just my love or your love or each other's love, right? It's Christ's love poured into us. So let's let our love for each other be a word of hope to each other that when I love you and you love me, it says that we believe in Christ that there's a better day coming for both of us. There's a day of hope coming when we will all be worthy of the love that God has so graciously, even now piteously poured out upon us. All right, to take these three truths, this, these realities of God's love, and now to close out thinking about how these realities impact the mission that we have together as a church. Jesus, we looked at last week, made the comment that when the world sees that the church is one, that Christ's people are one, it makes people believe that Jesus really has been sent from the Father. In the same way, Jesus also says that when the world sees the love that you have for each other, then they will come to believe and to know me. Because what is the love that binds us together except the love that God has first poured into us? And as we love each other beyond the human customs and norms of this world, as we come to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we, uh, we profess through our very lives and through our very love, which has been given to us as a gift from God, that God loves and that God has sent his love into the world. The testimony that we saw this morning, I think, is a powerful affirmation of that reality. Here, this young man, I'm not going to use his names for the reasons already stated, but here, this young man, he leaves one faith to join Christianity. But in the end, not in the end, mercifully, thankfully, but for a moment, he steps out of it because Whatever that congregation, and gratefully I can tell you it wasn't our congregation that he stepped into, but whatever that congregation was, he he couldn't experience the love of God through the love of each other, through the love of the body. And he almost apostatized because of it. Let the weight of that kind of sink in. The mission of God goes forward as we learn to love each other. And as people from the outside step into this space, they should be swept up into the love that we have for each other, the existing love that is already here because God has poured out his love into our hearts. And this young man is brought back into our congregation, and that's not made evident in the video, but into our congregation and has found the love of God expressed through the lives of you all here. And that's a testimony that we should rejoice and celebrate and want to live more into. So let's love each other. And in loving each other, let's open ourselves up to be the conduits through which the mission of God goes forward into the lives of those that he is drawing to himself, amen? Amen. Father, we rejoice in the love that you have given us in Christ. We recognize that we didn't deserve it at the front end. We had nothing to bring. We had no gifts to offer. We didn't have any favors. We were the poor that the world would say isn't worth giving love to. We thank you that you have loved us in your divine condescension and pity. And God, even more beyond hope, beyond expectation, beyond any claim that we can make, we thank you that you have loved us in a way that is making us, even now by the power of your spirit, day by day, step by step, from glory to glory, worthy of your love. Lord, we, we long for that in hope. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that covers us in between. Help us to love each other as we should. Help us to love you as we should. And God, may in the love that we have for each other and for you, may you use that love to open up paths for those that you are drawing to yourself to be brought back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.